Please turn in your Bibles tonight to the book of 2 Kings, chapter 6. Second Kings, chapter 6. And I'll read verses 8 through 17. Now the king of Aram was warring against Israel, and he counseled with his servants, saying, In such and such a place shall be my camp. And the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Arameans are coming down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him, so that he guarded himself more than once or twice. Now the heart of the king of Aram was enraged over this thing, and he called his servants and said to them, Will you tell me which of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, No, my lord, O king, but Elijah the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. So he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and take him. And it was told him, saying, Behold, he is in Dothan. And he sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. Now when the attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And so he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elijah prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes, the servant's eyes, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elijah. This morning we saw in our study in the life of Elijah how vain and useless it is for men to fight against the true and living God. The ancient king of Syria, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram here, he was such a man. He was intent on making war against God's nation, the nation of Israel. He would gather his chief advisors, the highest-ranking men in his military, into a secret war council, and they would make their plans of attack against the nation of Israel. They would pick out a secret location along the coast of Israel, a place they thought was most vulnerable, most unprotected, where they believed they would catch the Israelites completely by surprise, and they would send their commando raiders down to strike at that location. And but, but, but when they came to the place, they would find the Israelite soldiers standing guard on the shore, fully armed and ready for their assault. And seeing that their assault, their place of attack had been discovered, they would have to retreat in frustration and return to Syria. And this happened more than once or twice. 
But it happened over and over again. Every time the Syrians would send down their band of raiders to Israel, the Israelites would know precisely where they were to attack, and they would be standing guard, fully armed and ready for their assault. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, he began to think that there was a traitor in his war council. And so he called a special meeting to find out who it was that was revealing his plans to the king of Israel. And he found out that all of this was taking place because of the prophet Elijah. Whenever he would meet with his war officers in their secret council to plan against Israel, the God of Israel would be there in the midst of them. And he would know all their plans and all their words, and he would reveal it to Elijah, his prophet, who would then tell the king of Israel, and then the soldiers of Israel would be ready for their attack. The prophet Elijah knew everything Ben-Hadad did and said, even the words he spoke in his own bedroom, and all of Ben-Hadad's efforts to attack Israel were being thwarted by that one prophet, Elijah. And after being frustrated so many times, Ben-Hadad now came up with a new plan, which was to send a great army to invade Israel and to take Elijah, the prophet, captive. And he found out that Elijah was in the city of Dothan, And he sent his great army down against that city. We read in verse 14. And he sent horses and chariots and a great army there. And they came by night and they surrounded the city. The Syrian army here, they come down by night in order, they think, to surprise the prophet. They surround the entire city so that it will be impossible for Elijah to escape. They did this at night. Then when the morning light arose, we see what happens now in verse 15. Now when the attendant of the man of God, Elisha, when his attendant had risen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. And his servant said to him, to Elijah, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Elijah's servant apparently here awoke first in the morning, early in the morning, just as the sun began to rise over the horizon. He went out, he stepped outside, and he looked out, and to his great dismay, up on the mountains surrounding the city, he saw this massive army of the Syrian horses and chariots circling all around the city. The bright sunlight was reflecting off their shining shields and their swords. And no matter where he looked, they were surrounded completely by the Syrian army. And there was seemed to be no way out, no way of escape for them. And they were about to be captive, held captive, and then put to death. In his despair... Here at the end of verse 15, he ran to Elijah and he woke up the prophet and he cried to the prophet, Alas, my master, 
What shall we do? What shall we do in this most desperate and dangerous situation with the city surrounded by the horses and chariots of the Syrian army? The word there, alas, is a cry of desperation, a cry of distress and great anguish. It's used on other occasions in the Old Testament when men find themselves in anguish and in great despair and their souls are overwhelmed with distress. And that's what's taking place here with Elijah's servant. He thinks there is no hope for them now. The enemy has come. The end is upon them. And they will be taken captive and put to death. And he knows not what to do. And so he cries to Elijah, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Then Elijah says in verse 16 and 17, So he, Elijah, answered, Do not fear, he said, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elijah prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elijah. Elijah came to his window now as well, and he looked out. He saw the very same thing that his servants saw, the massive Syrian army surrounding the city with their horses and chariots in this very great army. But Elijah saw more than just what could be seen with the physical eyes of the Syrian horses and chariots. Elijah saw by faith the invisible angels of God. And so rather than being filled with fear and dread, Elijah calmed the fear of his servant in verse 16 and said, Do not fear. Put your fear away for those who are with us are even more in number than those who are with them. Elijah saw the angels of God who had come down from heaven to protect them. And there were more of these mighty angels than there were of the Syrians. And the angels of God were of far greater power than the Syrian soldiers. And they were manifested in this form of the horses and chariots of fire. The mountain was full when his servant's eyes were opened. The mountain was full of these horses and chariots of fire all around Elijah. The Lord opened his eyes. Elijah prayed for him. The Lord opened his eyes and he saw this invisible reality of the angels of God as chariots and horses of fire. Elijah had already seen the angels of God manifested in this very same form some chapters before when Elijah was taken up into heaven and they were walking along the Jordan River 
And Elijah saw a chariot, a single chariot of fire with the horses of fire, suddenly come down and take Elijah by a whirlwind up into heaven. But now he saw more than just one chariot of fire. Thousands of chariots of fire with their horses all around the mountain, covering the mountain. The Syrians had come with their horses and chariots for war. And so God sent his angels in the same form, but horses and chariots of fire to protect them. And what the servant saw and what Elijah saw on this occasion, it was not a vision. It was not a vision because in a vision, one sees what is not really there. And in a vision, one sees what is created in the vision in his own mind as if in a dream. But this is not a vision because here, Elijah and his servant, they saw what was actually there. Their eyes were open to this invisible, unseen reality The mountain was now full of these horses and chariots of fire. They gained a glimpse and they saw into the invisible world that was all around them. And so this is our subject for tonight and what we want to direct our attention to for a few moments, the invisible world that is all around us, and especially the angels of God who are sent to protect us, to minister to us, and to guide us into the eternal kingdom in the Christian life. There are always two parts in the world in which we live. There is the visible world of the things that we can see with our eyes and feel, with our hands, and there is also the invisible world, the spiritual world of things that cannot be seen with our physical eyes, the invisible and spiritual world which is just as real and just as much there as the things which we can see. The world we live in is a scene of a great spiritual conflict between good and evil. As we said this morning, there is this warfare that is taking place between the powers of heaven and the powers of darkness. And this conflict is worked out in the things that we see in this present world and in the struggles of Christians and the conflicts of the church. And we fail too often to consider And we underestimate the reality of the spiritual world which is behind the scenes of everything taking place before us. The Apostle Paul was unembarrassed. He was unashamed to speak very plainly of these things. He said in Ephesians chapter 6 that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That really is the reality that Elijah and his servant experienced on this occasion. Their eyes were opened to the spiritual powers that they were involved with. Behind the physical world, 
and all the things that our eyes can see, there is this invisible spiritual conflict taking place. And as Christians, we should be conscious and aware of it and look to it by faith. This was the great problem with Elisha's servant on this occasion. He was looking only at what his eyes can see. And he saw the forces of darkness in the Syrian army. They were advancing. They were encircling, surrounding the city. He failed to look at what his eyes could not see, but what he could only see by faith to the spiritual realities and the powers of heaven that were all around him. And because he failed to exercise his faith, he fell into fear and despair and cried out, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And not until he saw these things by faith was his soul comforted and his fear was taken away. We very often do the same thing. We see the advance of evil in the world around us. We see sin making great progress. Unrighteousness seems to have a free course in every way. We become fearful. We begin to despair. We think there is no hope for the truth of God and the kingdom of God. We begin to think that God has abandoned his world to the powers of darkness. And sometimes we begin to think that he has abandoned us to the powers of darkness. But it is not true because there is this great power at work in this present world. The angels of God, God himself, the Holy Spirit and the forces of heaven in righteousness and truth. And we must look beyond this present world to the invisible world and see what is beyond, what can only be seen by the eyes of faith. On this particular occasion, it was the angels of God who had been sent to protect Elijah and his servant in their great danger. The Bible has much to say about angels. They are all about the throne of God in heaven. They are mighty in strength, the Bible says. They perform his word. Whenever he commands, they go and they do. He speaks and they fly and they carry out his will. They have strength, they have power that are given to them by God. They do great works in the earth for the saints to guide them, to protect them, to minister They rule and guide providence. And they can accomplish all things that are needed for us according to God's will. There is a great difference between us and the angels. They are holy and pure and we are sinful and defiled. They are mighty and powerful. We are weak and frail. Their home is the glory of heaven. We live In this cursed earth, they are vastly superior to us in intelligence and powers, and they are above us in so many ways, but yet they are our servants from the throne of God. They are our servants, and they consider it to be their great privilege 
to come down from heaven and to minister to us who are the saints and the beloved of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they come down to do God's will in every circumstance and every need that we have for them. We find examples of them in the Bible, God sending his angels to, to defend his people in the scriptures. Throughout history, all the way back in the book of Genesis, it was an angel that came and rescued Lot out of Sodom before the city was destroyed. When Daniel was thrown into the lion's den, it was an angel who came and shut the mouths of the lions so he was not touched. In the book of Acts, when the apostle Peter was chained in prison and about to be put to death, an angel came in the night and broke his chains and opened the prison gates and doors and set him free. This is the way it has always been from the beginning to the end of the Bible. God's angels have always come as ministering spirits for those who are being saved. Sometimes they come in visible form. Very often they come in invisible form and they cannot be seen by human eyes. But though they are invisible to the human eye, they are nevertheless still there and very real. And once Elijah's servant saw them, he saw how weak the Syrian army was in comparison to the mighty host of heaven, and his fears were taken away. We might think that God's angels are sent only for prophets, great prophets like Elijah. We might understand how they would be sent to great men in the Bible like Lot and Daniel and the apostle Peter. But what about us? who are the humble and lowly and the ordinary saints of God. What do the angels have to do with us? Are they sent to us as well? And the Bible tells us that they are. They are sent not to the greats, not just to the great saints, but to all the people of God, no matter who we are. So we turn to a couple of passages where we can see this Tonight, as we think upon the angels and their great ministry, as they came and ministered defense to Elijah and his servant on this occasion, we will see that they come and minister defense and comfort and safety to us as well in our times of need. We turn to the book of Psalms, Psalm 34. Psalm 34 and verse 4 through 6. David says here in verse 4, he says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. And then he speaks, he seems to speak now of others and not just himself, but of Others, and he recommends this to all the saints of God. He says, they looked to him, the saints, the believers, and they were radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. And then verse 6, he says, this poor man cried 
And the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. So David recommends to all the people of God what took place with him can take place with all the saints. This poor man, he says, this man who was humble and low and poor, and he was in great trouble, he cried to the Lord, and the Lord heard him, and the Lord saved him out of all his troubles. And how did he do so? The answer is given in verse 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. The angel of the Lord. My understanding of that phrase is that it sometimes refers to a pre-incarnate theophany of our Lord Jesus Christ coming in physical form. But then on many other occasions, it refers to simply an angel from the Lord, an angel of great power from the throne of God. And that's what it seems to speak of here. He cried to the Lord, and this is very general for all the saints, the angel of the Lord, the angel who came from the Lord. He came and he encamped, and he does so around all who fear him. And he rescues them. The word encamp speaks of an army. An army that comes and pitches its tent around a city. And sets up its protection around that entire city. Like what those angels did. Those chariots and horses of fire around the city of Dothan where Elijah and his servants were. This is what the angel of the Lord and whatever other angels may be with him. They do not merely come down to visit, but they come to encamp military language. They come to surround us like an army from heaven. They come to protect us and to defend us against our enemies and against real dangers. And ultimately... To rescue them, as he says at the end of verse 6. Not just to come and encamp and visit with us, but to come and rescue us. And that's what the mighty angels of God do, ultimately. Now in this present world, and then ultimately and finally, as they rescue us out of this present world and bring us into the presence of God in heaven, this is their mission from the throne of God. It is a general promise which David speaks here. That no matter who we are, if we are among those who fear the Lord, that when we find ourselves in times of trial and trouble in this life, we have this great promise to meditate upon the angel of the Lord comes to those who call upon him and cry out to him, the Lord, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. And rescues them. We may be like Elijah's servant. We look at times only at those things that can be seen, and we feel and we fall into fear and to great despair. But we need to do what Elijah did for his servant 
we need to do for ourselves and pray that our eyes would be open so that we could see this invisible and spiritual reality that is all around us, that is promised to us in the Word of God. That our eyes would be opened, that we would see this great truth that the angel of the Lord comes and encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. We can turn in our Bibles to Psalm 91. Psalm 91. And we'll, sim- we'll simply glance at a few verses here in the beginning of the chapter. The psalmist speaks of the great protection and the shelter, safety that he has with God as his God. He says in verse 1, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. There's a place of comfort and safety and protection, no matter what great powers may come upon us. Let this Syrian army send all their chariots and fire and and horses. And let all the powers of earth come against the saints. This is safety to dwell in the shelter of the Most High and to abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Verse 2 I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For it is He who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His pinions, and under His wings. You may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. There is a place of safety under his wings, the wings of the mighty God in heaven. There we may find refuge in every storm, in every trouble in this life. And he will prove himself to be faithful to us with a mighty shield like a bulwark around us. And then he goes on in the following verses to speak of many dangers that might come against the saints. He says down in verse 10, No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come upon your tent. There is no danger that can harm us ultimately in this life if it is not God's will for it to happen. But how does this all take place? And how is this safety and this protection of God ours? We find the answer in verses 11 and 12. For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands lest you strike your foot against a stone. An amazing promise of God that he gives his angels in heaven charge over us. So that in every path that we walk in in this life, and no matter what may happen to us, they will guard us in all of our ways. They will bear us up with their mighty hands so that we do not strike our foot against a stone. Every saint who has been a Christian for any extended period of time knows this kind of protection from the Lord keeping us from dangers and leading us in the right way 
and keeping us, protecting us from many evils and many harms that could come upon us in this life. We continue to pray and he continues to answer us and to send his angels with this charge concerning us. These words here in verse 11, they were words that were misused by the devil when he tempted Jesus and he desired that Jesus would cast him down, cast himself down from the pinnacle of the temple because of this. God will give his angels charge concerning you. It was a temptation to Jesus to be irresponsible and to presume upon the divine protection in a very careless way. But so long as we walk in the right ways and we fulfill our duties in the Christian life and we do the things that are pleasing to our Heavenly Father and we do not presume upon His safety, then we can rest upon this promise. This promise is still true, though the devil misused it on that occasion. What safer place is there for us than under God's wings, abiding under his shelter with his angels, having charge over us to guard us and protect us in all of our ways. We can turn to another passage in the Gospel of Matthew in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 18. The chapter begins with the disciples asking a question in verse 1. Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They always wanted to know who was the greatest. And so Jesus called a child to himself and set him before them. And he said, truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like a child, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven Whoever receives such a child in my name receives me. And whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. But woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. So Jesus here, he begins this chapter by telling us that we must humble ourselves like children if we are to enter his kingdom. We must be as children or little ones. And then he speaks of the great crime in verses 6 and 7 of those who cause his little ones to stumble. And Jesus here recognizes that the world we live in is a very evil place. And there are many who will come and try to lead us astray and cause us to stumble and to be tempted into sin. And he threatens that there will be a great penalty upon any who do so. It would be better for them if a heavy millstone were hung around their neck and they were drowned in the depths of the sea. We live in this evil world of stumbling blocks all around us and many temptations. 
He goes on to speak of the hand that causes one to stumble. Cut it off and throw it from yourself. The eye that causes one to stumble. There is this great danger of all this stumbling and temptation to sin in the world that we live in. But in verse 14, he assures us that not one of his people will perish. He says in verse 14, Thus it is not the will of your heavenly Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. There is no saint of God who will ever ultimately perish even in this evil world in which we live. But the question is, how does the Father carry out his will? And the answer is given to us in verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels, their angels in heaven continually behold the face of my Father who is in heaven. Those who cause his people to stumble are those who despise his little ones. And Jesus warns that no one should despise one of his little ones. And the reason is, in the second half of verse 10, the reason why no one should despise one of his humble little ones in the earth is because they have angels in heaven. They're angels. They're mighty angels in heaven. They continually behold the face of my Father who is in heaven. They are in the presence of God. They have angels who may come and strike you down who cause them to stumble. A man would be a fool to despise one who has mighty angels in heaven as his defenders. The idea of beholding the face of the Father in heaven comes from the ancient practice of a king's court in those days. In the ancient world, if we had friends and we would say that they are always in the presence of the king, that would mean they were friends of the king, our friends in the presence of the king, in the court of the king, and no matter who we were, we would feel safe and we would feel protected because of any trouble or concern that could come upon us in the kingdom because we have friends who are in the king's court and they behold the face of the king. Today we call it having friends in high places. That's what Jesus is speaking of here. The most humble, lowly Christian on earth should not be despised by anyone because he has a friend, he has friends in the very highest place of all, even the mighty angels who are in the presence and behold the face of God in heaven and he will send those angels to defend his people according to his will. We do not believe in the Roman Catholic doctrine of the garden angels. And that teaching really has no support in the scripture that we do not have specific angels who are assigned to us as guardian angels. That does not, that is not true according to the Bible. But we should not reject that teaching 
and then reject the reality that lies behind it as well. That as the little ones of Christ on earth, we do have friends in the very highest place of heaven, and they are sent to protect us in the midst of our temptations, in the midst of stumbling blocks that surround us, and they are sent to protect us, to bring us safely into the presence of God in heaven, because it is not our Father's will that any of us should perish who believe in his beloved Son. This is what happened to Elijah when the Syrian angel army, the Syrian army came and surrounded them. God sent his army of angels in horses and chariots of fire to defend them. John Calvin said, It is no light matter to despise those who have angels for their companions and friends. The care of the entire church, the care of the entire church is committed to the angels to assist each member, to assist each member as he needs. And so God does this not just for the great prophets like Elijah, but for the most humble Christian. He sends his angels in every circumstance for their aid and their protection and their strength and their comfort on their way to heaven. We can turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. Hebrews, chapter 1. In the early verses of this chapter... The apostle speaks of the angels in heaven. He speaks of the beloved son of God, Jesus Christ, being above the angels, superior, more exalted, more glorious than any angels. In verse 5, he says, To which of the angels did he ever say, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. And he speaks of the son of God. I shall be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And then again in verse 7, he says, Of the angels... He said, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. So who are these angels about the throne of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ? We find the answer in verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. They are all ministering to us. That is their purpose. That is the reason for their coming into the world. Their mission, it is to minister. They are spirits. They have no bodies. They cannot be seen. They are spiritual, invisible beings. The angels of heaven. And they are sent out from Christ's throne to render service to us for whatever we might need, whatever service we may need in this life for the sake of those who will inherit salvation, for the sake of those for whom Jesus Christ shed his blood upon the cross. This is the great theme of the book of Hebrews, that Jesus Christ is the great high priest 
And he has come and offered himself once in one sacrifice upon the cross, once and for all time, to perfect his people. And he is the great high priest who sits at the right hand of God, always living to make intercession for us, to protect us and guard us. But how does he carry this out on so many occasions? He sends his angels as ministering spirits for the sake, for our sake, who will inherit the world that is to come. So when we find ourselves in great times of trouble, and everything seems to be dark, overwhelming to us, we cannot see a way forward. We feel like Elijah's servant in that city of Dothan, surrounded by mighty forces that all seem to be against us. What shall we do? We are weak, but the angels of God are mighty. We do not know what to do, but God knows what needs to be done. We have nothing in ourselves, but those angels have great strength, and he can send them to our help at any time. There is this invisible world that is all around us. And the angels of God are sent from his throne for our protection, our safety, for our comfort, and for all of our needs. There is this invisible world that is all around us that we cannot see with our eyes, but we can see by faith through the scriptures where God reveals it to us. There is the majesty and glory of heaven. There is our Lord Jesus Christ tonight who is seated at the right hand of God, the Father. He has in his hand the book of life. If we could look into that book of life, we would find our names written, we who believe in Jesus. If we were to look into that book and see and look for our sins that we have committed, we would not find our sins there anymore because they have all been blotted out by the blood of Jesus. We would find our good works, our good deeds of the Christian life recorded in their place. We would see the souls of all the saints made perfect. We would see the inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and reserved for us in heaven if we could see the invisible world, which is what the apostle speaks of in Hebrews chapter 12 when he says, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads, thousands, ten thousands of angels. This is one of the great differences between the believer and the unbeliever. The unbeliever lives as if the only thing that exists is the world that we can see around us. And the things of sight are what guide and motivate him in all of his decisions and everything that he does. He lives for the things that can be seen. For this world and for nothing more. But for us who are Christians, there is an invisible world that is to come and it is just as real and we live for that world. 
And we know that it exists by the truth of God in the scriptures. And so we pursue holiness. And we store up our treasures in heaven where moth and rust can never destroy. And we walk on the narrow way that leads to eternal life. We look not at the things that can be seen, but at the things that cannot be seen. For the things that are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Matthew Henry writes, when we are magnifying the causes of our fear, we ought to possess ourselves with clear and great and high thoughts of God and the invisible world. That's what Elijah did. And that's what he did for his servant as well. Let us pray together. Father and gracious God in heaven, thank you for your blessed word that reveals things that we cannot see with our own eyes, that you have told us in your book and spoken to us words of truth concerning these things. Lord, increase our faith and give us confidence in times of trouble and need in times of distress and great turmoil, we pray that you would help us, that our eyes would be opened like those of Elijah's servant, that we might see these great invisible realities of the world we live in. Thank you for your word. Bless it to us now. In Jesus' name, amen.